Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is the week of August 1st, 2019, and we are here talking about all three of our top news stories this week are going to be about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the engine that is driving its plot, the observations about plot that Hitchcock brings to the table that bear on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We're going to talk about how they did the Bruce Lee Warner in tech news. We're going to talk about them tuning the lenses at Panavision specifically for this job. And then we're going to wrap it all up with an Ask No Film School which is maybe about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we'll get to that when we get there. I'm Charles Hain, tech writer uh, at No Film School. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And, and buckle in for a whole bunch of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think, I mean, I think we didn't talk about this ahead of time. We can talk about this after the break, but we're not going to spoil anything, right? I think we can t- do all of this and not spoil a damn thing. Yes, we will not spoil anything. Um, All right, so this will be a great episode to listen to if you've just watched the movie or if you're going to watch it this weekend. Uh, We will see you guys after the break. This podcast has been brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Go to www.shotlister.com to learn more. Now, before we talk about the official stories for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I do just want to talk a little bit about two things or three things. One, why are we talking so much about this movie? It is a great movie. It is a complicated movie. There's a lot of controversy around this movie. We're also talking about it because this is a film nerd podcast that's part of a film nerd website. And there is probably no working director who is as deep a film nerd as Tarantino. So it does seem really appropriate that no film school would really nerd out on a Tarantino movie, especially because there's so few and far between. It's been four years since the last one. But also, I'm just going to say it. There has been a lingering sadness in me since seeing this movie for like three days. And there's some movies you see and then they're immediately gone. And this is one of the movies that has lingered with me and that I have wanted to talk about more than any movie I have seen since maybe T2 train spotting. And um, so yeah, that is why I that is why it's so dominant in the podcast I, this week. <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. Um, I've been ra- trying to wrap my mind about why this movie haunts me. Um, I mean, there's some obvious reasons and then there's some very personal ones, but um, I'm very curious to know, because Quentin Tarantino, as you put it so well, is such an important figure in filmmaking uh, right now, but maybe ever, because, you know, this is a filmmaking blog. We're by filmmakers for filmmakers, and it's called No Film School. Quentin Tarantino is like a champion of a no film school mentality. Um, He is a guy who loves movies. He learned how to make movies by watching the movies he loves. He continues to make movies that are an ode, this one in particular, to uh, movies and the business of making movies and the history of movies and the strange little ones that you maybe haven't heard about and all things in between. But on the flip side of that, the interesting thing about this movie in particular, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a profoundly middle-aged movie. And there's a real struggle in this movie about the generation coming up below you, not understanding them. You know, this is a movie about two middle-aged, you know, two of the three lead characters. If the movie is about three people, it's about Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie. It's about Rick Dalton and his stuntman Cliff Booth, 
played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who are middle-aged men. And they are middle-aged men in a little bit of panic and anxiety about the future coming beneath them, the youth quake that is the hippie movement, the way in which the world is changing. And it's really interesting to think about this film as a product of 2019 because Tarantino, I mean, there was that great 2003 New Yorker profile where, like, he didn't use the internet, which in 2003 was, like, he probably uses it by now. But, like, 2003, (laughs) he wasn't using the internet. He didn't have a cell phone yet. Like, he was... You know, he's still not shooting digitally. He's still shooting photochemically. Like, there is a lot about Tarantino that is very much fixated on a very specific... Because film is a technology, right? Like, film was invented. And there's this interesting thing where he seems to have viewed it as having peaked somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s. And that is as far as he's interested in taking the technology. But if we look at it, like... No film school, the ability to learn filmmaking from YouTube videos and articles and tutorials as opposed to watching six movies a day while working in a video store is a bit of the future. But also, it's sort of interesting to look at this movie and think about it in terms of like, movies are changing and cinematic entertainment is changing and it is now much more built around, you know, the top 10 movies of the year superhero movies in a way that wasn't true when Tarantino first came out. Uh, where, like, studio dramas and studio prestige picks. And, like... He is a product of another era, much like his leading men. That's a great point. So one of the posts up uh, that's that's been going around is this... uh, The one... It's titled The One Rule That Lets Quentin Tarantino Get Away With Anything, which is really more about plot function than about, you know, getting away with breaking, uh, you know, making people uncomfortable. But the, the thing that I wanted to highlight that you touched on is I kind of posed this question that has been at me, which is how this movie made by Tarantino starring Pitt and DiCaprio, who are all three men who've had tons of success for a very long time. How did they capture so perfectly what it feels like to struggle in this town? They don't. And one of the things I thought is, I guess they've struggled all in this town in their own way. And maybe none of us truly escaped that feeling here. But as an Angelino who's been in and around the business my whole life and, you know, multiple generations back and and knowing so many people in it at various levels of success who have heights and highs and lows. And I just so easily connected with this idea throughout the movie that is this sort of painful, whimsical, it's tough to survive in L.A., in, in the Hollywood part of L.A. And I had the same, while I was watching the movie, I was I had the same thought where I was like, you know, this is a movie that's not about also rants. It's not about failures. It's not like mocking these people no. for failing. Yeah. It's like people who are in the mid-level of the film industry who are trying to survive to the next thing, who are trying to keep going. And it's this It's this pervasive thing about life in L.A. where, you know, so I always tell this to my students, like so many people I know in L.A. who are have been in movies you've seen. I know a guy who like has been in three best picture nominees, Uh, not in a big part, little parts, but he's a great like character actor, still has a day job, you know, still has like a day job because being a bit part, no matter how good you are. (laughs) <laughs> like it's not it's not Man, enough and it's crazy and it's and it's a great thing to be able to highlight here because like something people don't realize is you know you can have a movie that gets distribution i have you can have i have an uncle who's starred and and been in movies that are iconic and yeah. he's been a working actor his whole life he's a working man there's a blue collar part of this town 
that even if you had a regular part like this Rick Dalton character, you could be a star on a series for a while, but the series is going to go away, and then what? Yeah. And you could be a Sharon Tate who's having your moment. And and there's a it's a very funny moment when uh, Rick Dalton is is recounting his what if scenario of uh, he could have been in The Great Escape, but it wasn't really a realistic option. And it, it's it's perfectly executed. But for me, it really because it's like so many of us in this town have those things that were like, you know, if the if the wind had blown a little differently on that day. Yes. What would have happened? You know, we've all had that or so many of us here have had that. And it's just such a part of it's such a part of living here. Just as much as being in your car all the time by yourself listening to the radio is a part of living here. Twenty percent of this movie is people driving in cars around <laughs> L.A. And it's magnificent and it's wonderful. And it's like it's this magical thing. But it is like there is like a generosity because you're right. Like Brad Pitt. Leonardo DiCaprio and Quentin Tarantino have all outright owned their homes in the hills with their pools for 20 years. But there's this generosity. (laughs) You know, there's this discussion. Rick is talking about, you know, in this great L.A. way, like, man, you got to try and own when you're here. Like, when you move here, you got to try and own. And then he's talking about, like, should he sell in the way that, like, everyone in L.A. is always talking about real estate because you have to. And it's like this beautiful moment of, like, Rick talking about owning this house in the hills while his best friend Cliff is then going to drive home and sleep in a trailer. It's like this fascinating yeah. kind of, there's like a certain that's truth a, in their a, friendship. That, it's a beautiful relationship that they capture on screen. And, and uh, I saw a funny tweet today about how no one's talking about how it's, you know, there's this subtle love story there. Where's the think pieces about the love story? And I was like, Oh, interesting. But the, uh, the thing I, that what you just said that, uh, that caught my attention there is that um, he, that moment where he talks about at the end, he's like, he, he sets things up as like, it's great to own. And someone advised him, you own in the Hills and I live next to Polanski and stuff. And then later he's like, yeah, so we're thinking about selling the place and moving out to Toluca Lake in an apartment. And it was like, Ooh, it was like an arrow to my heart. Like, it's like, cause you've heard that. I've heard that so many, that type of thing, yeah. you know, it, it's a reality of, of this, of this life is like he he was uh you know I know I know uh Tarantino is a big Star Trek fan but part- original series but also particularly a Shatner fan and and I, I there's a Rick Dalton uh Cliff Booth Shatner thing if you know a little bit about William Shatner the man he did you know Star Trek was a hit show but he kind of fell off and disappeared for a while and it, he was struggling to get anything. He could still be a guy who was on a big show, who had a house in the hills, but he could also be a has-been already. You know, it's a very real, um, that's a reality that even famous people deal with. Well, and also, um, I mean, they, you know, uh, there's so many people who influence this, but Burt Reynolds, who was supposed to be in it, who passed away, like Burt Reynolds and Hal yes. Needham, the friendship of a man and his stuntman, an actor and his stuntman, like that closeness, that kind of thing. There was also, I ended up thinking about... Uh, uh, Michael Nesmith a lot. Uh, if you're not a Michael Nesmith fan, he the amazing musician. He was in the Monkees, but then he went on to sort of like co-invent alternative country in the 70s. And uh, I read his autobiography a couple of years ago, and he tells a lot of stories about being like living in the hills in the early 70s, like post Monkees, like that kind of like, I don't know. It's like a very specific thing. Like you've been on a show, you had yeah. a big cash flow. The cash flow is changing. 
And what decisions do you make around it? How long do you hold on to one life, assuming it's about to bounce back? Um, that's really fascinating. Going back to the article that you wrote, which I thought was a really great sort of insightful thing. One of the engines of the movie is the observation, you know, the the classic Hitchcock observation that like, you know, anything is more interesting if there's a bomb underneath the table. Two people chatting, not that interesting. But if if the audience sees that there's a bomb underneath the table, there is that threat that is looming and our anxiety, our desire to warn these characters is part of what makes the tension interesting. And obviously in this movie specifically, there's the Tate LaBianca murders, which we all know is coming and we all know the movie's about. But there's also this sense that this is a moment in time, like like literally when Leonardo DiCaprio's mm. character, Rick Dalton is talking about selling the house. I'm like, no, California real estate's going to go through the roof. Just figure <laughs> out how to hang on. Just hang on to it and you'll be able to sell that and retire in 20 years. You know, like there's all these things we know about the last 50 years and one of my, I, there's a lot to love about Tarantino. Every filmmaker has his flaws and his blind spots and he lingers on foot shots too much. We can all agree. Yeah, but, that's that's just one of them, though. There's some yeah. other weird things. But, we don't need to get into all of them today. But one of the things I love so much about Tarantino, and I talked about it on the podcast last week, is his fascination with the fabric of reality. When he's talking in The Hateful Eight and Jennifer Jason Lee is like, you have to leave me alive because you can't get out of here alone. You need mm. me to man the horse team. And she goes into all this detail. And, you know, the, like the details of reality are really... He, he loves, he loves specifics. Yes, he loves yes. the specifics and the the details of of so many of the like that's that's part of what how he gets away with doing that. So I've I've looked at his career and I didn't really dive too deep in it in the post, but he I think he's played around with a lot of these things and now even though he's claiming he's going to leave us soon as a director at least writer director I Soderbergh he, said the same thing we're still getting Soderbergh movies right I I would hope we don't it doesn't stop but that aside I feel like he's really putting these things together in a beautiful way now because he's always loved that specificity but sometimes what he would do would be create these scenes that sort of lingered on it without an underlying tension. And now he can do things like a scene where Sharon Tate is negotiating how she's going to get into this movie for free that she's in. And they have this sort of extended discussion where they talk about which character she is from Valley of the Dolls and how much the ticket costs. And then the manager comes out and it's like this extended scene that doesn't need to be an extended scene, but he really wants to like embellish the moment and part of the reason he can is because there's an underlying sense of doom uh, with this, you know, beautiful young woman full of life and hope who, if we know, we know full well what's going to happen. Or at least, as I said in the article, if you don't know full well what's going to happen, you probably should going into the movie because it's not a spoiler. And the movie is really built on the foundation of this, you know, one of the darkest chapters in Hollywood history, I get you would say, right? But the film also does this really good job of making us not just anxious for her as an individual, but for the 60s and the golden era of Hollywood and, like, this whole world that's ending. Like, you feel this moment in, like, California and hope, and you feel it slipping through your fingers in a way. Mm. In a yes. way that I think is, like, part of the underlying bo the bomb under the table is not just... Yes. That that not just that this one murder is going to happen, but that the whole world is about to change on us. 
And I think that that's also the genius of using this particular moment and this particular incident because it turned all that hippie, the peace and love side of the hippie counterculture became very dark very suddenly. And so that changed the that changed the narrative a bit. Um, and I think that that that's also what the movie's anticipating. But yeah, the whole movie is a is a nostalgia play in the, in the best sense. You know, we have nostalgia plays all around us now, but this does it through the medium itself by showing us all these different kinds of film. I loved when they shot some Super 8. Like I yeah. learned to shoot film. I went when I went to undergrad film school, I cut on a Steenbeck. I loved that. It's so cool and so weird and nobody does it anymore because <laughs> there's no reason to do it. Nobody needs to learn how to do it. It's a unique, I treasure that I had that experience. Um, I know you, you know, we both, we sh- share in common a history with USC grad school. I worked on a project that shot black and white film, but yeah. watching Tarantino play in the sandbox of film the way he did, plus play with what movie advertisements look like, what radio sounded like, what all of those things are like. It, he, he drenched us in the time. The affection we get for the locations where we shoot. Like, there's a scene where it is implied, you know, the Manson family lived at Spawn Ranch, and it is implied that Bounty Law, I think it's even stated, Bounty Law had originally shot at... Yes. Bounty Law is the show Rick Dalton was on, had shot at Spawn Ranch. And there's a moment where one of the characters decides to return to Spawn Ranch in order to, like, check in. And I have gone, you know, I'm sure many filmmakers have had this experience. You have a certain emotional relationship to a place when you shoot there. Shooting is such yeah. an intense experience, and it's so time-intensive, and it's such a, like focused energy moment in your life. And it is very weird to 10 years later go back. I mean, you know, uh, doing my feature in West Virginia or uh, I hosted a TV show for a while in Inwood and you go back to this place where you, because time and space are different when you are shooting. There is a certain feeling of like everything else sort of falls away and it's all very focused and there's this big team of us and we're here in this moment doing this thing together. And there's this fascinating decision you, all of that emotional charge goes into the choice to go back to that location. But then that location is not what it used to be. It's not what it was when they shot. It is now this changing thing and a darkness yes. is coming. And uh, when I drive by places that I've shot, be it like Vasquez rocks or parts of death Valley or being in Southern California, we always drive out to the desert. I've shot at many movie ranches, passion projects, like moments in my life, people I was with, people I knew, friends that that have come and gone, people who have died. Like the places you shoot are time capsules uh, of your experience. And they color, they are the, they make up the fabric of our lives. And, you know, I was just with uh, founder CEO of No Film School, Ryan Koo, the other day. We were at a basket, an outdoor basketball court at a school. And his feature was about a kid uh, playing basketball, amateur. And uh, he was like, I feel like I'm scouting locations again. Every time I look at one of these, it takes me back to scouting like outdoor. Yeah. It's like these things really live in us. Um, and, and, and for me, it was like, again, very personal watching the film, but because Spawn is like a movie ranch and it's Western and it's deserty, I've shot not at Spawn, obviously, but in so many places like that with like rusted over old stuff from other times, it just, uh, it, it's, uh, this is a movie that feels so much about making movies. And there is a thing, um, that's talked about a lot that Hollywood loves to self-congratulate and uh, I don't, I'm really curious how people in this, um, 
in this country or in the world feel about this movie as filmmakers who don't feel a connection to Los Angeles. Because for me, this is a very Los Angeles movie as well oh, as a yeah. Hollywood and filmmaking movie. But I wonder, how does it connect to your experience? Is there is some of this universal? You know, is some of this like, if no matter where you're making, I mean, you just said, you know, being on the East Coast, a lot of people shoot stuff out in New York. A lot of people shoot in Vancouver. Like, is all of this experience... I mean, now filmmaking is globalized and democratized. So I'm curious, I guess another, going back to another thing you said, that's also why this movie is about this little moment where it all happened in the movie town, you know, for the most part. You know, I could talk about this movie for hours. I found it fascinating. I just feel like, I mean, there's things, maybe we'll come back to it at some point and talk about some of the the, the controversies about the ending, how the ending and uh, the way the movie's crafted has affected people emotionally, because there's been a lot of uh, stuff like that. But I think the thing I would put forth to a lot of our listeners and our and the readers of the site is I'm I'm very curious how people feel about this movie as they're connected to this craft that it's so lovingly connected to, but not connected to this this city. Because I think for you and I, it feels like, oh yeah, making movies in Los Angeles, that's a very familiar thing. But I wonder if it connects in the same way. I'm very curious yeah. about that. I, I am as well. There's also, even if we don't talk about the ending, there's so much controversial. I mean, Brad Pitt's character, Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, is like not a bad person. Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, Loves his dog, but there is some moral. Uh, there is an ambiguity and a comfort with violence there that is legitimately like, and Tarantino lingers on it. Tarantino is obviously smart enough to know that this is a dark, complicated character with darkness in him. I'm not, I don't think you have to say everybody you make a movie about is a good person. Like, I think you can make movies about bad people, and that's okay. And I think it's like, you know, no one is saying Cliff Booth is the hero of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but like there's some comfort with with darkness there. A hundred percent. And and one of the great things about it and the way it's crafted, and this is not something we've covered yet on the site, so I'm glad you bring it up, is that um, beyond just the fact that these two men are so well cast in these roles and do such excellent jobs, um, is that Quentin Tarantino builds characters where so much has happened to them that we don't ever see or hear about that informs what happens on screen. And it's something that, you know, there's there's backstory to that Cliff Booth character that we don't yes. know about. We get a hint here and there. We get a passing line. And for other writers out there, you know, I, I it's to me, it's a mastery of of the craft in a way that Tarantino can write a character where he gives you one line here and there about who this guy is outside of what we're seeing on screen. And it then it sticks in your mind because that's your clue. But you, we don't get like a lot of flashbacks and we don't get a lot of explanation. I mean, we just, except for we, one amazing flashback. We get one amazing flashback within a flashback, actually. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is, is also the, really cool. <laughs> which is the perfect transition to tech news, yes. which will come up after the break. This episode is brought to you by Shotlister, the only professional shot listing and scheduling app. Paper shot lists suck. When something inevitably goes wrong on set, you're left to scribble all over your perfect plan, guessing if you'll be able to make your day. 
But with ShotLister, you can schedule your film on a shot-by-shot and minute-by-minute basis. And then when things change on set, you can simply update the shooting schedule on the app and ShotLister automatically does the math for you so you know exactly how you're doing. And its crew sync feature means you can keep the whole crew up to date. ShotLister is designed by filmmakers for filmmakers and is available on macOS, iOS, and Android. Check it out at shotlister.com. As a special bonus for listening to the No Film School podcast, Shotlister is giving away 50 free downloads every month. Just email nofilmschool at shotlister.com for your free copy. We're back with tech news. Tech news this week. We are also still talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we're going to talk about two specific technical aspects of the movie. So second, we're going to talk about some cool stuff that they did with the lenses. But first, on the subject of the flashback within the flashback we were talking about, um, obviously Tarantino loves a one There's that phenomenal entrance to Jackrabbit Slims that's a big, long, steady cam shot in Pulp Fiction. Kill Bill has an amazing one in it, uh, which I think was operated by Larry McConkie. Um, there's a lot of good, long, steady cam winners in Tarantino's oeuvre. Um, one of the big winners in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a phenomenal winner. I had a DP friend who used to uh, like to say, like, a Steadicam shot is never that impressive because Steadicam guys are all really good at being smooth. The impressive part of Steadicam is the acting and the lighting. Um, mm. And this particular one, uh, you know, he, he wasn't being dismissive of Steadicam guys. He was just like, a good Steadicam guy is really good at long, fluid, beautiful shots. But if the acting holds oh, no, up totally. and the lighting holds up, that's what's impressive. And there is a winner that is a fight sequence. Like, it opens with a big, long speech from Mike Moe that is, like, amazing and engaging and, and hilarious. And then transitions into a fight where you are watching Brad Pitt and Mike Moe fight. They did a lot of rehearsals. During those rehearsals, they had not been informed until the end of rehearsals it was going to be a one which I think is an interesting move on Tarantino's part, and I'm sure is well thought out. And then a couple of days before the shot, he did say, like, I want to do this in one. And uh, the best, the uh, one of the key takeaways from that article is, and they planned to do it for a day. Oh my God, please give yourself a day for a one I can't tell you the number of times a filmmaker, like when I was working a lot as a DP, the director would be like, all right, I'm just going to do this in one. Well, and then like in an hour, we'll move on. And it's like, no, 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 no. Doing it in one is harder and takes more time. So thank God to hear that. Uh, obviously Tarantino is smart enough to know that. And they planned a full day for it. And apparently they, uh, the actors were so great. They were able to wrap it before lunch. And I'm sure then they found other stuff to shoot that afternoon. But it is an amazing fight scene between Mike Moe and Brad Pitt. And, uh, you know. It, You're so engaged in the story during it, too. You don't even you think about it all, being a one Yeah, you don't even think about it. It's so dynamic. The other thing that makes a one interesting is good writing. And, like, one of the things we are often doing in the editing room is rewriting a script. We're like, oh, we don't need that line or we don't need that beat mm, or this needs point. to be faster or this needs to be slower. And the fact that everything in that sequence feels so right without the ability to change pace in post is what makes it an impressive oneer. And actually there are a lot of like famously good oneers where like they call a lot of attention to themselves and you find yourself watching the oneer more than you find yourself watching the story. And this is one yeah. where it it continues to be engaging. But the more nerdy tech news article is we have a story up right now that uh, covers uh, an interview Dan Sasaki did, I think, with Filmmaker Magazine, where Dan Sasaki, obviously, if you're film nerds, you, you probably have heard the name, uh, VP of uh, Technical something at Pan, a VP of Panavision who uh, does lens design. 
um, very high up in the Panavision lens design universe. And uh, really fascinating article talking about the fact that uh, Tarantino wanted to shoot anamorphic, of course, because Tarantino wanted to shoot vintage <laughs> lenses. But what was interesting about it was he was talking about how the C-series lenses, which are sort of the, like, the oldest lenses, the oldest anamorphic Panavision lenses still in common circulation. There are also some weird old other 60s anamorphic lenses nobody really touches anymore. And there's like the 70s high speed lenses that get really soft, wide open. But the C series are the like good enough to be considered modern quality, but old enough to have personality Panavision anamorphics. But he talked in the interview and I thought it was a really nice point that I wanted to bring up here. And hopefully people will read the article too. We think about lenses we have different expectations for our lenses today than we did then, right? Like even when I first started shooting 20 years ago, you didn't expect insane close focus out of every lens. You sort of just sort of intuitively knew or understood that you're like, all right, I'm shooting anamorphic. My close focus is going to be seven feet. I'm not going to be able to get close-ups as easily. I'm going to have to use a diopter if I want to close up. I'm just like, it was just part of shooting that you accepted, especially with anamorphics. You didn't have great close focus and it wasn't, it was just, that was the world we lived in. And it was really interesting to think about the fact that they wanted to do this movie in these vintage lenses, but they also wanted the ability to do close-ups. And the thing with a diopter is diopters often make it hard to stage a shot that like someone walks into a close-up, right? Mm. So they used the yeah. modern T-series anamorphics, and then they detuned them, and they don't go into detail on how they detuned them, but detuning is sort of changing the lens characteristics, what coatings you might use, how they are lined up together in the housing in order to change the way that the chromatic aberration is corrected for in order to wow. match the vintage lenses. So they had a sort of set of custom-tuned lenses that are designed to let them use, to let Robbie Richardson, the cinematographer, and Tarantino stage these sort of modern stagings where there are close-ups that walk out into wides and that kind of thing, but with wow. that vintage personality, which is, of course, the kind of stuff you get to do when you're at the top of your game. You get to, like, really develop a relationship with Panavision and and really build this look that nothing Here's else can do. Here's an interesting question I have about that. I'm curious what you think. In a way... If you're trying to use the tools of the era to create the look and the feel of the era, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the movie or Quentin Tarantino or Robert Richardson. They are all at the peak of their, their the height of their powers. But I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of, well, you couldn't shoot it like that then. So we're not going to shoot it like that for this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like create the limitations within your, uh, filmmaking process that that evoke the spirit of that time is that just too nostalgia nerdy of me to think that that's what you should do because obviously people audiences today are expecting modern things like walking into a close-up but there's a part of me that's like no no why not shoot it exactly with the exact limitations of 1969 well i think it's an interesting i mean you could look at a movie like the good german which was soderbergh's last movie on on celluloid before he went all digital and he did that he was using vintage lenses and vintage sound equipment and vintage lighting equipment and it was really i i quite enjoyed the good german actually i think it's a pretty fun too. movie um but it has all those technical limitations i think it's more interesting to think about like image quality and staging as separate Im 
uh, separate things. And like this is a movie from 2019. And yes. a lot of the things that like that ticking, this goes back to the storytelling you were talking about. I mean, the uh, the bomb under the the story technique yeah. of the bomb under the table before this movie is made now and is about capturing the flavor of that moment, which I think aberration and and focus and things like that do. But also living as part of today, which is, I think, what staging yeah. and camera movement, because you I mean, the the whole Bruce Lee Brad Pitt sequence, you would never move a camera. You couldn't physically move a camera like that in 1969. <laughs> right. The, the yes. crane technology you needed and the stabilization technology and the camera was too heavy. You couldn't do that. So it's this interesting thing of like Tarantino feeling free to take image quality and combine it with staging and mix it up in this way where it's very much a movie of today, but very much trying to capture a flavor of a moment in time that is slipping through yeah. our fingers. Well said. That's the way it sort of functioned. I want, before we finish on tech, I, and because we're talking about those camera movements, and there were so many great shots with cars, so many cool ways to yeah. shoot cars in this movie. There were some really cool shots of the horses. Like oh. there was this, there was oh a, yeah, like <laughs> you know the shot I'm talking about. Oh, like yeah. there was some, there was yeah. some cool stuff going on there that I was like, oh my god, that's beautiful. Like yeah. No, and this is so nerdy. I'm not even sure if this is going to. I haven't read the American Cinematographer article on this yet. I haven't read, um, so I haven't read it as deeply as I'm going to. But this is one of those things. There's a driving sequence where, if you want to get into the history of lighting, um, streetlights have gone through generations. So, like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was very common to see streetlights that were mercury vapor, that were this very particular blue kind of color. And actually, if you've traveled abroad, you might have noticed you'll go to a certain place can't remember what year I went where, but I remember I think it was Cuba in 2008. And I was like, oh, mercury vapor because L.A. had changed. And L.A. Mm. in like 2011, 2012 changed to LEDs. And it was like a noticeable yes. thing if you were a, a lighting nerd. Yes. Where you were like, oh, yes. our streetlights feel differently. LACC used to have mercury vapor, actually. So it still felt like a different time period. And there's a driving sequence where Brad Pitt is driving. And there are mercury vapor blue lights in the background. And I don't know if they rebulbed the parking lot. I don't know if they drove around L.A. location scouting until they found a parking lot with that. But it was such a perfect period appropriate moment where I was like, that is what night exterior would look like in the valley in the 60s way more than. And I was hyper conscious of the backgrounds and I did not see a big like modern Home Depot LED parking lot. Um, yeah, I really want to know. That's so fucking and cool. It, it I was really, on screen for like I want to rewatch it to look for that. I don't know if anybody yeah. else but me would have noticed, but I, the gaffer and the cinematographer probably noticed. But those are the things that give the flavor that we're talking about. That even if you, even if I, so I'm not going to notice something like that. But I, as soon as you start talking about, it, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember when they changed LED lights. I know that the look has changed, and those are the things that by doing them, yeah, I might not notice it while I'm watching the movie, but I notice it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel it. Well, and to be clear, when they went to LEDs in L.A., before that, it had been low-pressure sodium, I think. I don't remember exactly. Mercury vapor ended in, like, the 70s and 80s in most of North America. It was just weird that mercury vapor was still the thing at LACC and a couple other places. So this is, like, two or three generations back where it has that very specific kind of color cast to it. Um, I can't wait for the American Cinematographer article to find out if this was deliberate. (laughs) Um, We'll circle back to it. All right, everybody. Hey, we're going to wrap up with an Ask No Film School. Karan, 
K-A-R-A-N asks, I'm planning to study film production abroad. Which country is the best in the world to study? I'm an aspiring filmmaker from India. Can anyone help me? What is the best college and the best place to work? So. Wow. I, I picked this as the Esno Film School this week because there is a temptation to say Hollywood. And I wanted to talk a little specifically about that. So first off, obviously, no film school is des- is designed as a site where you can learn everything you need to know about filmmaking without going to film school. On the flip side, you went to film school undergrad. I, I, I both went to film school and teach at a film school. I am pro going to film school if it is the right decision in your career for that moment. Um, totally. I think there are many, I mean, obviously Tarantino, I love his movies. He dropped out of his freshman year of high school. Like you don't have to go to film school. It is not a requirement. We are not the medical industry where you have to get an education to get certified. Um, I think film school offers you, you know, the three real benefits of like a tremendous amount of structure, which is very useful for a lot of people. I have friends who are PA for 10 years and then went to film school and directed again and wrote again and gave their career a boost. Um, film school is also great for community. Film school is also great for a three-year period where you're thinking about nothing but movies, which can be a really wonderful thing for a lot of people. Obviously, Tarantino probably thought about nothing but movies for the three years <laughs> of that period. Anyway, um, some people are capable of doing that. But you didn't ask whether or not you should go to film school. You asked where you should go. And I thought that that was a really interesting question to answer this week as we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, especially because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so much about the way in which L.A. and the movie industry were interrelated at a certain time. So I'm going to say this. First off, wherever you go, if you decide to go to film school, you are not just going to film school there. You're building your network there. So, like, I, you know... I don't think every once in a while a student will be like, should I go to L.A. after graduation? And I'm like, why? You just spent three years going to film school here. Everyone you know is here. You're going to like you're going to want to give them jobs and get them jobs and help each other out. And you've spent all this time interning here and building relationships here. You know, I went to grad school in L.A. I lived in L.A. for a year beforehand to be sure that I could. I wanted to know that the city was uh, something that I could have some relationship with because I knew wherever I went to grad school, I was going to stay for a while. And I left L.A. about 10 years after grad school. And I honestly think that's as fast as you can leave after grad school. Honestly, I think if you decide to pursue a film school education, you are committing to five or 10 extra years in that town playing out all the relationships you built. So you should think about this not just as like, where do I want to go to school, but where do I want to have my life for a decade? Where is the place where I want to be a person for those 10 years at least? Um, there are many wonderful film schools all over the world, USC, uh, Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, where I teach. There's a wonderful film school in London. There's Paris is a great film school. Uh, Cuba has a very popular film school. So you should think about that. But you should also probably do a little work about where, like, you should you should think for yourself, where are the people making the things that I want to be part of, right? Like, where really are thought- they making that stuff that I want to join in? I thought you were teeing up this question because you were going to answer with Cuba because Cuba has the mercury vapor lights. And that's oh, thought, that would thought, be such a great <laughs> connection. If I thought I'd... you were going to be like, and so this is why, I, which is ridiculous. But anyway, um, it just popped into my head. I my my answer. I think that's a great answer. Um, I you know, Los Angeles is still the home to. I I say it's kind of like where the deals are made and where things yes. like are finished, but it's not where the the magic happens as much anymore. A lot of the shooting happens in other places. So, you could um and and I may not even be 
the authority on this at this point, but you could definitely go to a film school in a place where there's a lot of production happening that's not New York or LA. So you could go somewhere. There are probably rental houses there. Like you could go to Atlanta. Um, yeah. You could go to Vancouver. Um, you could go to a lot of pl- You could go to New Orleans because I know there's a lot shot in Louisiana. So there's opportunities to connect to a community and connect to work and be on set after in a lot of different places now. There weren't in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or, or oh, real yeah. Hollywood in 1969. Um, you know, I can't. I've been in in Los Angeles my whole life, and my mother and her family moved out here in the '60s. So my so my experience of everything and the contacts and the network, it was like, well, I kind of want to do this stuff in this, and I've been here, and I'm already here, and I'm not leaving. And uh, yeah, so that that colors my opinion of and my life experience. Charles had the experience of being like, I'm going to go to this school and I'm going to build the career there and then you also had a move which i think is an interesting addendum which is like you took your career on the road and you're still working and you set down roots in a new place and Um, i will say this not in la new york is on fire right now now chasing the fire is tricky i didn't move here because it was on fire but like it you know the other day i was uh i was you know walking my baby which is something you do when they wake up real early and you're like we're gonna go for a walk there were two productions in my neighborhood which like when I first moved to L.A. in 2003, that happened to me all the time. I'd be, like, walking, and there'd be, like, a Michael Mann movie shooting and whatever. By the time I left L.A., L.A. did not feel fire like that. And anecdotally, yeah. I have been talking to a lot of people lately who are, like, I'm fresh out of grad school, and I'm on this user forum, and I went to grad school in L.A., but all my friends are moving to New York for work. Like, New York is busy. However, chasing busy is tricky because busy is driven by these big movements like tax incentives and all sorts of other things. And so, like... Go where you want to have a life, but pay at least a little attention to where things are sizzling and things are the list of cities George just laid out are some some big prominent cities. But look, if you're like, you know what? I love current South Korean cinema and you want to go to film school in Seoul, go to film school in Seoul and spend 10 years in Seoul. Like go where, you know, it, it, it's not. As George said, it's not 1969. The film industry is not in Los Angeles only. There is a big, wide, crazy world full of places where you can launch a career. And uh, your gut should be your guide about where you want that to be. Bringing it back to Ryan Koo, he went to New York and he found himself eventually in L.A. His career brought him here. So you never know where the career is going to take you, where you start and where you set down your roots and start making your contacts and making your projects. You may very well end up at a meeting in Los Angeles for a while or coming out just for meetings and then living somewhere else. You never know. You never know. You never know. Thank you, everybody, for enjoying our like real deep dive into a variety of stories about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this week. We will probably end up talking about it at least once more next week, but we will also talk about other things. I am on the Twitter at Charles Hain. You can also always, if you want more like pure tech news, you can always follow my tech news podcast, The Week in Film Tech, wherever you subscribe to podcasts or weekinfilmtech.com or check out my articles on nofilmschool.com. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School, at George Edelman on Twitter. You can uh, email No Film School with questions and comments at ask at nofilmschool.com. You can also email us with stuff at editor at nofilmschool.com. We're always curious to hear your feedback. Uh, if you hate the things that 
we've said or love them or want us to talk about other things or have ideas about articles or whatever, uh, hit us up. We love to hear from you. All right, guys. See you all next week.